I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to LiveWire. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host. How's it going? I hope you're having a good week. It's about to get real good. Why? Because we have one of my favorite episodes of the show each year. Once a year, there is a big literary get-together in Portland. It's called the Portland Book Festival. And when all those cool and interesting and fascinating authors come to Portland, we are able to pick some of them off and put them on LiveWire and chat with them. Uh, think of the Portland Book Festival as a giant fishing trawler, and uh, we are the seagulls kind of trailing it in the water. And then every once in a while, we drop down and we ask one of the fish what their writing process is like or something like that. Anyway, here's who we have on the show this week. We have Abby Jacobson, who you may know from the TV show Broad City. Uh, she's written an incredible book. We also have Nicole Chung, who is a writer, and she was adopted as a child. Uh, she went on a journey to find her birth parents and found out all kinds of things about them and herself in the process. And my friend from the smash hit public radio news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter Segel will stop by. He is an avid runner. He's got a new book out about uh, what he's learned from logging all those miles. Uh, the theme that we picked, appropriately enough, for this week's show was hitting the road. And when we picked that theme, I started thinking about an adventure I had this last summer where I decided to hit the road in a, for me, very unconventional way. Uh, a buddy of mine decided we were going to try to hitchhike from St. Paul, Minnesota, down to the state of Mississippi. Let's pick up the story as I told it to our announcer, Elena Passarello, on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Take a listen to this. We got a ride from St. Paul. It was supposed to go to Waterloo, Iowa, but the person giving us a ride was running late for something else. <laughs> so they had to drop us off in a nearby town called Denver, Iowa. So we get out. It's like a thousand degrees. We get out with our huge backpacks, we walk over to a freeway on-ramp in Denver, Iowa, and proceed to stand there for what feels like 10 hours. Oh, no. Melting in the humidity. 
It was probably more like 45 minutes, but it was, it was a long 45 minutes. That's a long time to stand and wait. Nobody wanted to pick us up. Finally, a 16-year-old girl in a Jeep that her parents bought her for her birthday <laughs> pulled up and said, get in! <laughs> um, which tells you how little there is to do in Denver, Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> she told us she had been circling and getting up the nerve to pick us up. And drive us to Waterloo. And we were very sweaty and very appreciative for the ride. Me and my buddy both sat in the back seat, <laughs> wanted to not in any way make this person feel threatened. But what we were both thinking the whole time that we rode to Waterloo, Iowa was, this is a terrible idea for this young woman. <laughs> like, we had no bad intentions, but as soon as we got there, because we didn't want to mess things up for ourselves, like we needed this ride. As soon as we got to the place we were staying, we got out and we said, thank you so much. Never do that again. <laughs> Did you feel, when you were, since you, you were a, the kind of hitchhiker, a friendly hitchhiker, like the sure. minute you got into someone's car, did you have to sort of perform how harmless you were? Was there, so, I do that in a lift sometimes. I'm like, look at me, I'm not going to puke, you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally sober, you know, do, do you, which is a lie. Uh, <laughs> Do you, did you feel that you needed to establish your uh, uh, innocuousness? We definitely, uh, we tried to be as, uh, as non-disruptive to the, the people. Sometimes there'd be stuff in the back seat and you just like find yourself sitting on a car seat <laughs> that was kind of too small for you. But you're like, I can wedge half of a buttock into this. Or like some people smoked a lot in their car and it was like, yeah. the privileged part of me wanted to be like, do you have to do that? And then I realized, oh yeah, it's their car. Yeah. They have to do that. It was, an, it was a kind of an amazing experience to not have total control of my situation all the time in terms of like if I wanted to go somewhere. And when I went back home and I was driving my car, I started to think differently about seeing people yeah. who were hitchhiking. And I'd said, if I see some people and I think I can help them, I'm going to try to do this because I know what it's like to be standing there. Right. And so not three or four days later, I was coming out of, I was actually going into a Whole Foods in the town where I live. Okay. And there was a family standing outside the Whole Foods. And then I went in and I shopped at all this stuff. This is like 10 o'clock at night. I come back out. They're still standing out there. And I was like, hey, what's up? Do you guys need a ride? Would have never asked that before my hitchhiking experience. And they were like, yeah, we, we, we tried to call a cab. No one's coming. I was like, let me help you. And I got them in my car. I said, where are you going? They told me the address. We started driving, and I was so proud of myself because I was like, I'm doing it. I'm living my truth of being a benevolent human being. And I said, what? I was just like, I just couldn't believe how lucky these people were to have met me. Right. And I said, where are you guys going? And they said, we rented a yacht to sail around the Vancouver Island. Oh, my God. But the guy who's the captain of the yacht we rented, we can't get him on the phone, so we were stuck at the Whole Foods. They were like the Howells from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> they were so rich. <laughs> and I drove them to the marina <laughs> to get on their yacht. They were from San Francisco. Do you think maybe you should have been tipped off by the fact that they were standing out there in like little ascots? That and, was, you know, uh, like now that I jackets. think about it, that was a dead giveaway. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I haven't picked up a hitchhiker since then, but I feel like I helped out. I really helped out the one tenth of one yeah. percent. You're making a difference. That night. That's well, great. thank you. I'm proud. Not all heroes wear capes. That's right. Um, 
All right, so we are talking about hitting the road this hour, and our next guest has done that with his feet probably more than anyone else I know, or certainly more than any other host of a wildly popular public radio news quiz. His new book is The Incomplete Book of Running. Please welcome my friend and the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter Sagal to Livewire. Peter, welcome to Livewire. I really feel we should leave it there. We have a spectacular lineup this show, but I have to say, you fit right in because you are a writer. In fact, you were a playwright before you were the host of a a very popular public radio news quiz. And this book that you wrote is great reading. I feel like I know you, and I found out all kinds of things about you I hadn't known. Uh, You ran when you were in high school, and then you kind of slacked off a little bit or got distracted with other parts of your life, and then you hit middle age, and you really kind of had a dark period, and it sounds like you picked running back up as a a way to to sort of uh, cope. Well, the great thing about running is when you're done, you're farther away. (laughs) Yes. Scientists will tell you that. That's kind of the point. What did running do for you, though, and, and what does it do for you, for your kind of mental and emotional well, health? Well, uh, for one thing, it keeps me from looking too much like my father too soon. <laughs> You're fine with it, but you I'm just fine with want it, it to but be it's going to happen. At we the all right know time. this. There's nothing I can do to stop it, but I can delay it. Um, you, you might be aware of this, being a public radio host yourself, but people such as ourselves, and dare I say most of our audience, spend a lot of times in our heads. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Thinking about how terrible things are, how inadequate we are, about what we might have for dinner. It's a, it's a mess in there. It's, it's a lot of stuff going on. And, our um, brains are not always our friend. No, 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 no. And I find it very important to, to get outside and unplug and just move. I think for a lot of, I will go, dare to say, public radio types, our bodies serve only to move our heads from screen to screen. If you've ever seen, like, a cat riding a Roomba. Oh, yeah, I saw that on the internet. Yeah. That's us. Our brains are the cat, and the Roomba is the sort of other thing, which is our body, that we put our brains on so that the brain can get where it needs to go so it can stare at that screen or eat that food. And I think that that's bad. And I, I decided that I would spend more time focusing on the Roomba part. Have I taken this metaphor <laughs> all the way to hell? You have no idea. I'm just gone. He's you out of the back the of the theater. You took the metaphor into a corner, and then and it stopped, sort of and it backed and, up. Yeah, exactly. And it went back in, and it backed yeah. up. Yeah. We are talking to Peter Sagal, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. His new book is The Incomplete Book of Running. Um, uh, you are, though, you're a very modest person, uh, but you are a fast runner, yes, dude. Yes, I'm really modest. <laughs> I pride myself in my modesty. When I look, look at your times, like you, you have run many marathons, and you have run them, uh, the ones that you were trying to run your fastest, as opposed to being a guide to someone, which is yes. something you've also done. Um, you run really fast. What do you think accounts for that? Is it a physical thing? Are you just better somebody, at, at, at putting the pain in the back of your so, mind? Somebody once said um, that they were complimenting me, and they said, Peter Saley, he's not a very talented runner, but he's a stubborn one. And that's kind of how it works. I'm just going to do this. 
And the audience can tell, anybody who's ever seen me, I, I, I do not have that lithe, cheetah-like physique <laughs> normally associated with long-distance runners. I'm kind of, to use perhaps the most apropos metaphor, shaped like a Dalek. Are you, are you with me? I mean... Is that a Doctor Who reference? That's a Doctor Who reference. I figured they'd get them. It's, it's like, this, if you can imagine an enormous salt shaker that somehow moves, that's kind of me. But moves very fast, because yeah. the, just the, sort of to put your mind to it and then just refuse to stop is one kind of running. But to actually have a talent for it and to, to run long distances at a pretty fast clip, yeah. I mean, you do, I think, have some physical knack for it. Well, apparently. I mean, I did okay with it. I think it was because... I mean, thinking back on it, it that period when I was, when I was uh, increasing my speed and, and getting better at running marathons was also the period that was the, the, the declining and final years of my marriage. And when you think about it, the idea that I became get very good at getting as far away as possible, as quickly as possible, was not, I think, an accident. <laughs> This book is really funny and interesting to me, but I also am a runner. What is in this book for people who maybe aren't runners because either it's not interesting to them, physically it's not possible for them? How do you write a book about running to try to have a broad appeal? Well, it is true that the only problem about writing a book about running is that if you do not run, hearing people talk about running is awful. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Keep worst. it down with the clapping. You know, no, it's true. When I... This would never happen at Wait, Wait. No, when I... I mean, when I don't want to, like, talk to anybody, if I have to get through a social event, I just put on a little button saying, ask me about my marathon time, and people just... <laughs> so, um, so, of course, you know, I decided to write a book about running for mass appeal. Uh, th this is what I generally think. You, you don't have to go running. I think it's a very good thing to do because we're all capable of doing it. You don't need any lessons. You don't need any equipment. And here's the thing... Everybody should do something. I think, as I said, we tend to take our bodies for granted, and it's not a question of just keeping up the equipment. It's a question of like parts of ourselves that we've forgotten about. So I honestly believe that for everybody who lives in 2018 America, especially 2018 America, you need to go outside. You need to unplug. You need to like not be staring or listening. I know I'm saying this on the radio, but... <laughs> As soon as this delightful program is over, you should tear out the headphones and just live in your head for a while. You haven't been there. You might find it surprising. Uh, hang on, uh, Peter. We got to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We'll be right back. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Based in Portland, Oregon, Fully is an amazing company that sells and distributes things that will help you feel healthier while you are being productive doing your work. How do I know this? Well, because I use a Jarvis standing desk from Fully when I am on stage recording Livewire. That's right. I can set that thing at any different height that works for me in that moment. It keeps the blood flowing, keeps uh, me feeling engaged. I think you can hear the results, my friends, coming through the radio and the podcast. If you would like to stay healthy and productive while you're being productive, at your work, whether it's at home or in the office, you got to check out what the folks at Fully are doing. Go to Fully.com slash Livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash Livewire. They've also got the Cooper Standing Desk Converter. 
That gives you the ability to set your desk at any height you want as well and just uh, figure out a spot that works for you. I promise it'll make a difference in your in your work productivity and how good you'll feel at the end of the day. I know it has for me. I also use the TikTok stool when I'm at home doing all of my uh, radio show writing projects. Uh, it's made such a difference for me and for our whole Livewire staff, and I know you're going to have the same experience. So again, find out what Fully has got going on by heading over to Fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. And we have Peter Segel here from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. All right, Peter, your new book, The Incomplete Book of Running, talks about something that you know very well, which is running marathons. We wondered, though, how much do you know about other things that are 26.2 miles? And yes, if this sounds familiar, we are completely ripping your show. Wait, wait, don't tell me off for this bit, except we have a very clever name. We call this Let's Get Quizzical. Let's get quizzical. Here's how this is going to work, Peter. I am going to ask you about things, and you are going to try to guess if these things are longer or shorter than 26.2 miles, which is the length of a marathon. All right. The distance from the Chase Bank Auditorium in downtown Chicago, yes. on the way, wait, don't tell me, to the street in Gary, Indiana, where Michael Jackson grew up. Wow. Longer or shorter that than 26.2 miles. That is a good question. I've driven you. to we Gary many times. It. I've driven to Gary many times. I'm going to say that's shorter. You are wrong. It is slightly longer. Ah, it's 31.8 dang. miles to 2300 Jackson Street. Was that a coincidence or did they name it after him? I believe they named it after All the right. family. <laughs> okay, you're, you're 0 for 1. In the seminal 1993 movie Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, is the distance that Sassy the Cat, Chance the Bulldog, and Shadow the Golden Retriever cover to get home. Is it longer or shorter than a marathon? Well, I think I have to stand with the audience. I mean, I don't think you, you do a, like a fabulous family film about a th trio of three unlikely pet friends <laughs> crossing a street. No, it's a... <laughs> and it's called The Incredible Journey, right? Yes. That would I be mean, Homeward Bound, The Predictable Journey. The Homeward Down. Where they come from the end of the block I'm going on an incredible house. journey out to get a pack of cigarettes. No, it's got to be longer than a marathon. You are 100% right. They went 250 miles. Wow. And it is based on a true story of three animals uh, who came from the wilderness back to their family. It was filmed here in Oregon. Well, there you go. The um, how about this? If you took the entire DNA genome of a human, yes. you stretched it out and laid it flat. Yes. Keep in mind, this is three billion base pairs. Right. Would it stretch longer or shorter than 26.2 oh, miles? That's, that's tricky. I, I, I like to think that I know something about Evo Devo, but I don't know that. Um, so the, like you're saying, you'd like the, a single human, like the entire genome. Yep, three has billion a base parts. Strand of Stretch DNA. it out, lay it flat. Lay it flat, right? Let it dry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Put something heavy on the corners so it doesn't yeah, yeah, curl yeah. up. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna say only because it seems um, not not predictable. I'm gonna say longer. It is about six feet. <laughs> it's way shorter. <laughs> Peter Segel, thank everyone. you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luke. Hey, it's Luke. Do not go anywhere because coming up, we've got Abby Jacobson from the TV show Broad City 
talking about making comedy at the top of your intelligence. There's a very easy joke, or there's one that's actually thoughtful and really using all of your knowledge to enhance the scene. That is coming up on LiveWire from PRI. Don't go anywhere. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on nonstops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. Our next guest journey to find out more about their birth parents who'd given her up for adoption took twists and turns that she couldn't have imagined. Uh, It's all detailed in her personal and fascinating debut book, All You Can Ever Know. Please welcome Nicole Chung to Livewire. Nicole, hi. Welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. In reading uh, your book uh, about your childhood where you were uh, adopted, your, your parents, your birth parents gave you up for adoption uh, right after you were born. You were adopted by a family. Uh, you lived here in Oregon. And you're, uh, you're Korean-American. How many people like you did you see growing up as a kid? Oh, my gosh. Like, so few. Um, Did you really have a game called Count the Asians? Count the Asian. First of all, I'm not the only Asian to play this game. We all kind of play it, mostly when we watch TV and movies. Um, (laughs) It's it's becoming more fun lately. Um, But, yeah, growing up, I would. I would keep, like, this running tally of, like, every Asian American I saw. The people who own the Minute Market. The people who, like, work at the Chinese restaurant. And I could sometimes go years without seeing someone who was, like, brand new to me. And I didn't actually know any other Korean Americans, like not any that I was close to. That must have been like really hard to to not see many other people like yourself. And I mean, how what kind of effect does that have on a kid growing up? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think first of all, it was the only thing I knew, so I, I definitely noticed. Like I always noticed, uh, oh, I'm the only one in this room, or the only one in this school, or the only one in this church. But at the same time, it was it was kind of normal. Um, And I didn't necessarily think about it all the time. I was just constantly, like, aware of it. Uh, It took, really, I think, growing up and leaving home and, like, leaving Oregon. And I've lived in, like, very diverse pockets um, of the East Coast ever since. Uh, And so I think it just took time for me to experience something different before I could even start to think about, like, maybe some of the harm done by that environment and some of the scars that I still carried as a result. Um, when you were an adult and then you were pregnant with your own child, you decided that you wanted to really try to find out what the story was with your birth family, your birth parents, and, and then what you, what you ended up finding out was that you, uh, you had two sisters, you had a sister and a half sister, mm-hmm. your birth parents were both alive, but there was something sort of profoundly troubling about what the story that was being told about you was. I think so. So, so much of the book is really about this foundational story that I was told, like how very simple and comforting it was. Your birth parents came here from Korea and they didn't think they could give you the life you deserved. And so really adoption was the best choice or the only choice. And I really carried this legend with me for so many years, this idea of like these loving, selfless people um, who loved me so much they had to give me up. And you can see why it was a comforting story and why my parents told it to me. I think we all kind of wanted to believe it was true. And I should say, like, there's a degree of truth in it. 
What I wasn't expecting to find necessarily was just the deep traumas and some of the hard things that I found within my birth family, you know, that had nothing to do with my adoption. Um, and we often don't talk about adoption in terms of like the birth family and what their experiences are. And you know, even though I thought about these people all the time, like had been curious about them my whole life, I didn't have like the framework to think about them like as individuals or think about what they had gone through. So much of the focus was on like me and my family and like our happy ending. Did that feel like a ton of pressure for you or, or as a kid or even as a, as, a, as a young adult to make this narrative really positive for you and positive for your adoptive parents? Because of course their heart's in the right place. Oh, of course. And I was very loved. And I think, um, you know, I did encounter like real real racism, like where I grew up. And at the same time, there were just a lot of people who were very curious about adoption. So we'd get these questions like at the grocery store or like wherever, like where'd they get you? Like how much did you cost? <laughs> but the thing is I really did, I really did feel that pressure that you mentioned to like paint this idyllic picture for people and make them think like that my family was normal, that I was happy and well-adjusted and grateful and all the things I thought I was supposed to be. Um, so yeah, I definitely did feel that, that pressure growing up and it is probably one thing that kept me from interrogating my story for as long as I, I did. We're talking to Nicole Chung. Uh, her new book is All You Can Ever Know. Uh, it's about her life uh, as uh, somebody who was adopted in the search to find out more about the birth family. I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I feel like I can't really talk about the book with you without addressing this one thing, which was that basically you found out that your birth family, your parents told your siblings and presumably other people that you had died. That's true. They did. What does that do to a person to find that information out? Well, when I think about that and that, I mean, that lie and uh, like how they told it and how long they maintained it, you know, as shocking as it was for me to find out that, um, you know, for instance, my sisters had never been told the truth about me, like think about how much more shocking it was for them. Um, I was working with very little information. Like you knew you had been alive. Exactly. Like you knew you didn't die. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So I, for you, this was, you know, Well, I also okay. had, I had a lifetime's worth of practice talking about adoption and like what it was and what it meant. And maybe we didn't always talk about it like with all the nuance that we should. And we never really talked about race in my adoptive family. But I knew how to talk about adoption. I knew what it was. And like my sisters didn't, you know, my, my birth family as a whole, I don't think that they had that same culture of either openness or discussion about it. So when they find out about me, like imagine their shock. Yeah. You're dealing with a lot of complicated emotions and you're you're, you've recently had a baby and you're this, this whole part of your life is, is both opening up to you, but also you're finding out a lot of complicated news. But yeah, for them, there is a sister who they were told did not survive being in the hospital as a kid. I mean, it must have been a pretty big shock. Absolutely. It was a very big shock. And I remember feeling so guilty for this. Like, I mean, they were very kind and they didn't blame me, but I remember thinking like, what if they hate me? I've upended their whole lives. Everything they thought was true about their family. Like, and we all have things about our family that we have to fight to come to terms with, right? But you think at a certain age in your life, you'd kind of have it figured out. You've got all the pieces, like, sorted. And then to be thrown something like this, like, out of left field, I remember... It's like from a soap opera. I mean, that's a lot. It was like a, a Korean drama. Like, oh, my God. Um, but, I mean, this experience of, of telling... Okay, yeah. so you lived this, then you wrote about it, but right. now you're experiencing it again in a weirdly public way. Like, what's that feel like? Well, in a way, of course, it's really overwhelming. Um, a lot of my life... Life, uh, at least as related to my adoption, is out there now. In another way, it's actually really great because I've been hearing from like a lot of adoptees every day since the book was published. I get emails and I get messages. And for a lot of them, it's the first time they've seen anything like their story in literature. And that's been very meaningful. 
But I've also heard from a lot of people who have no tie to adoption whatsoever. They say, like, maybe um, I related to this part of your story. Like, I didn't know one of my parents, or there's an estrangement in my family, or there are these things, my family, we just don't talk about, and I don't know why, and I want to talk about them, and no one else does. That means a lot to me, too. I think we tell stories for that feeling of community, that sense of you're not alone. Yeah. And I just think that's so powerful. Um, if I didn't mention it at some point, I think it, it's, it's worth mentioning that your adoptive parents were white, so you were part of a transracial adoption. I mean, I would imagine that it's something that is very much relevant to the people listening to this radio show, at least some of their lives. This question of how do you consider and what should you be considering when you're, if you're thinking about a transracial adoption? Like, is there, I mean, you're not the, of course, the spokesperson for this, but you have been through this experience from the other side, I guess. In fact, the book starts with you being sat down by some, some people you knew who are asking you basically, hey, you went through this, how was it for you? And of course, that launches you on this whole journey of asking, how was it for me? So, I mean, what is your opinion on the matter? Because I think everybody has the right intentions, but it's obviously very complicated. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is that growing up, I did feel a great deal of pressure, um, both because I love my family and because um, people who weren't as familiar with adoption would ask me these questions about it. I really did feel like this unofficial spokesperson, and I guess I kind of have all my life. Um, I got to a point finally, and it happened around the time I decided to search for my birth family, where I just felt like it was time to lay down that burden of being like the good adoptee, the happy, grateful little girl who doesn't get to grow up and question and think about like her own origin story. Um, but I, I don't really feel like negatively about adoption at all or transracial adoption. I think sometimes people want me to sort of take a firm stance like pro or con. I really don't think of it in terms of good or bad. I think about it like when I think about people adopting, I, I want to ask like, are you going into this realistically or unrealistically, like with your eyes open or not? What I, would be a realistic way to go into this? I think if you're going into a transracial adoption, um, and again, I want to qualify this. I feel like the not very qualified to give parenting advice. I'm just going to put that out there. Talk to a professional. Um, I think uh, the best thing to do is really ask yourself some tough questions. So are, are you able to ask yourself, like, of course you're going to love the child. Like, that's a given. That's a start. But, like, love and good intentions will only take you so far. But, like, are you really able to sit and have those, like, hard conversations about race? Like, we live in a white supremacist society. You're raising a child of color. You know, what will you do? What will you say? Can you really walk with that child in every experience they're going to have, positive and negative? Um, and these are things every parent has to ask themselves, like, to be clear. Um, so, you know, I don't think any of us are exempt from that work. But if you're going to adopt across racial lines, like, you really do have to think about that. How do you be a child's first, closest, best ally, given the kind of society that we live in? Nicole Chung, everyone. The book is all you can ever know. Thanks, Nicole, for coming on Livewire. This is Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarella. We're here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. And this week we're talking about hitting the road. And we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose if they were taking a road trip through hell and there was only one song on the radio, <laughs> what would that song be? <laughs> Feelings are about to get hurt. Yep. Well, I've divided them into three categories. <laughs> and you can pick. Uh, there are repeat offenders... Uh, there are generally interesting and, I would say, acceptable uh, choices. And then there are things that I completely don't agree with. So we can Let's start with one of the ones you don't agree with. Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. <gasps> right? 
I mean, I, I figure like it's got to be a song that a devil would want to torture you with. It does. And I'll say this. I like the song Sabotage, but I could also hear it as the backdrop to a lifetime of being tortured. It has a certain, that quality to it. I mean, I would counter that maybe all great rock songs could torture. There's screaming and, you know, maybe that's, uh, yeah. it's too good a song. This is another one uh, that I, I really, I, un- I think I understand, but I'm kind of like, ah, this is from Mandy. Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell. Wow, that's a hot take, Vaz? Mandy. He's such a wonderful, amazing singer. Uh, I Did don't know. you watch the documentary about his final tour, oh, Mandy? How yeah. could you say that? It's okay. <laughs> I think we're creating a dangerous dynamic with the audience, Elena. Yeah, I don't know. I've never had an audience member so openly mock me during the show as Mandy just did. Mandy just said, sorry. Okay, one, one more. This is from Colin. Colin has chosen With Arms Wide Open by Creed. Oh, yeah. I Finally, agree. something America can agree on. Colin adds that nothing like some bad Christian rock to take you straight to Satan. <laughs> well done, Colin. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking about hitting the road this week, and our next guest hit the road recently on a solo road trip from New York to L.A. to get over a bad breakup and to unplug from her hectic life. She ended up getting her aura read and writing a New York Times best-selling book about the journey. Clearly, I have been doing heartbreak wrong. <laughs> She's the co-creator and co-star of the TV show Broad City. Her new book is I Might Regret This. Please welcome Abby Jacobson, the live wire. Abby Jacobson, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, before you even started this road trip, uh, you you made a list of sort of worst case scenarios. Uh, you were worried about just terrible things that might happen. Like, what were you concerned would happen? What would have been the one of the worst things that could happen driving by yourself from New York to LA? That I would be like murdered. <laughs> Right? That's kind of at the top. Be up there. Yeah. yeah. How about below murder? Heinous things happening to me. Um, yeah, I, I, below that, I think it would be me getting very lost and having to like hike out of something. Right? You, you Those wrote, are like obvious You wrote about like a variety of kind of crazy scenarios. One of them was, I think, where you, you just go to this bar in the desert and you fall in love with the bartender oh, and yeah, you just yeah. live your life out in this kind of weird. <laughs> Way that you didn't expect, but it feels right. Uh, yeah, I started a new life uh, in the middle of nowhere. One of them was because I, I pitched this book before I went um, to force myself to take a vacation. I, wait, wait, wait. I was going to ask you about the process of creating the book. Yeah. It wasn't like you went on the road trip and then thought, oh, I'm having a lot of interesting observations. I should make a book. You knew you were going to do the book? Yeah. I write about this, the fact that I'm a workaholic, very much so. And we had been shooting um, season four of Broad City, and we were editing, okay, cool. And we were editing, and I was just very depressed, and I was very heartbroken at the time, and the show was this incredible distraction. Um, But I was still just like a mess of a person, and I saw this break coming in the near future after we were done editing. 
And I was like, oh no, <laughs> like the distraction's going to be over. I'm going to only have an opportunity to think about this stuff that makes me feel bad. I'm going to go and sell a book to force myself to go on a quote, in quote unquote, uh, vacation, which was this road trip. So I didn't know exactly what I was going to write about, but I knew I was going to go on the road trip. So one of the worst case scenarios was that no one would buy the book. Were you really afraid that that would happen? That no one would buy it? Yeah. Broad City is a huge hit. You've done all kinds of cool stuff. You have many, many fans. You thought no one was going to buy the book? I have never written uh, in this format before. I have a couple books out, but they're illustrated books. Um, I had been wanting to challenge myself by... Uh, writing essays for a long time. And I just like felt the need to do this. I don't know. I, I was and am still very nervous about um, this. The book is so good. Thanks. It's really funny. Thank and you. really like I can identify with so many of the thoughts that you're having in the book as a fellow successful female TV creator. <laughs> uh, no, the book is really, it was a real delight to read. Oh, so, that's awesome. I mean, Thank you. I can just tell you from my perspective, I think it's going to be really popular. I think you did a great job on it. Did you keep notes along the way? Because one of the things I love about the book is the thoughts that you're having are very much like the kind of thoughts most of us have while we're driving or lying in a hotel room trying to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Yours are better and funnier than most of ours. Like your interior voice is more funny than most people's interior voice, thank God. But like, were you writing those things down as you're driving? Like, don't have good snacks because then you'll eat all of them. Or like, how are you holding on to everything to make this (laughs) book? That's a chapter. That's like a legit chapter. Um, because I was feeling pressure of like, oh, when I get to LA, I was driving from New York to LA. When I get there, I'm going to begin this process. So I was very observant of myself along the way, even though my intention was to get space and to, you know, to try and process all this new stuff in my life. And, um, I mean, I took notes, I had a journal, I took a lot of photos. I didn't write any of the essays on the road. So you were able to actually have the experience too. Like you weren't the whole time cogitating on the creation of this book. No. I got to LA in August and I basically wrote the book August to August. Now you uh, are not a great sleeper. No. And in fact, you write in in great detail about like sort of minute by minute trying to fall asleep in various hotel rooms. Um, Have you tried to just lying perfectly still and telling yourself you can't, because I have the same problem at times, and I will lie perfectly still, and I will, my body will be like, you gotta move your ankle, dude, and I'll be like, no. Like, don't, just stay, yeah. Yeah, there's three essays, that I call them sleep studies in different cities <laughs> along the way, and I was finding um, patterns in my thought, and because I'm staying in a hotel, there is like the TV's light that, there's a red light that's like, tells you it's off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I can tell that the TV is off. I know that much. I don't need the red light to be like, oh, uh, yep, it is off. But when you're trying to go to sleep, you, you are like that alarm clock, and then there's like a sliver of the curtain. Right. And then there's the hallway door, and it is like, along this road trip, and I mean, this happened to me last night. I was like, the TV light is like a spotlight on my bed. I was like, this is craziness. And so a lot of it was like, don't let that light bother you. That light doesn't bother you. And then it's like, I can go to sleep with the stupid light. And then it's like, no, I can't. Um, 
can't, and I have to like cover everything. And so that's part of it. Um, I tried all the stuff. I tried like melatonin. I tried Unisom. None of that worked. Did you try unicycling? No. Okay, no. The shame of that will put you right to sleep. Yep. Just the attempt. Yes. Just like kind of having it leaning against the wall. Just looking at it. You want to be menaced. That's something I never, ever need to try. By the way, we are talking to Abby Jacobson uh, from Broad City and uh, Disenchantment. Uh, Let's talk about that. This is a show that's on Netflix. It's uh, created by Matt Groening. You're the voice of the princess, who's uh, like one of the more relatable princesses for me in that she has a drinking problem. Yes, she does. Um, I assume you grew up watching The Simpsons. I did. So that must have been crazy to suddenly work with a bunch of the people who make The Simpsons. Yeah, it's still nuts. Uh, I don't get offered stuff, and I don't audition very often because I'm mostly doing Broad City. A big part of of this book is about how you are not really engaged with the Hollywood media industrial complex. Yeah. and, And how that will always keep you... Somewhat outside of the mainstream, I And guess. I like it, but I'm also clearly like, don't know. I'm not getting those auditions. Anyway, I did the audition, and I was like, I'm not going to get this, like most other auditions. And then I forgot about it. And then they were like, you got it. And I was like, shut up. What? <laughs> um, and then I've been recording it for two years now. So it's pretty much a dream job. I want to ask you about one thing, uh, your days of doing improv and, and meeting Alana and, and the different improv uh, groups you would perform with. And you kept talking about uh, operating using the top of your intelligence. What does that mean? It's, a, it's one of the, the rules you're taught, at least I was taught at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. And it's all the rules you're taught are very applicable to everyday life. It's like uh, yes and. So talking with someone you should add to it as well like agree and add and using the top of your intelligence in improv it's kind of like don't take the easy way like there's a very easy joke or there's one that's actually thoughtful and really using all of your knowledge to enhance the scene rather than coming out and farting there's a way of farting intelligently Operating at the top There's of your fart intelligence. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Abby Jacobson from Broad City. Her new book is I Might Regret This. Um, we've got to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We will be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Luke. A special thanks this episode to Rick Garner of Gresham and Scott Bricker of Portland, Oregon. Did you know that Rick and Scott are part of the Livewire member community and that they are generously supporting this show with a donation each month? And you know, you might not even be hearing this show if not for folks like Rick and Scott because their generous donations are really a big part of how we are actually able to do Livewire week in and week out. So a very big thanks to them, Rick and Scott, Thanks for making Livewire possible. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host here with Elena Passarello. We have Abby Jacobson here from Broad City. 
Abby's new book, uh, I Might Regret This, is a great read. It's about a road trip that she took across the country. Um, you write in the book about the creation of the show Broad City, and I, it's just such a great read because I love the image of you and Alana Glazer sitting on the floor in a Barnes & Noble which you had picked because it was basically equidistant between out of your two works or two apartments. Yeah, like it was the end of the night. <laughs> we were both leaving work and we're like, let's meet in this midtown Barnes and Noble. Yeah. So you're sitting on the floor and you're trying to come up with a name for this thing that you're going to do, which at that time had like no real funding. You're just kind of making it happen. Um, what do you think it is about the show that has so resonated with people? I think it's what made me actually feel like this was a different uh, this felt different than anything else I had tried before. Why this specific dynamic between Alana and I felt like it had the legs, whereas everything I was trying in, in the comedy world just felt like it wasn't working out. It was just this thing that clicked between us. Um, it's so rare that people actually have a relationship before they start working together, acting together. But it is so based on our actual relationship even when I watch it, which sounds so crazy, but I have to watch it so much in the edit, it even resonates with me like, ugh, this friendship makes me happy. We just finished two weeks ago shooting the last scene. I don't know if I will ever be in a situation that felt like that. I mean, we've been doing the show for 10 years. I feel very lucky, and that's such a rare creative thing to get to work in that way with, with your best friend. Well, it just seems like that would have been so emotional. I mean, the show is always has, has attempted to be funny first. We, I think as we've gotten older and as the world has become more of a hellscape, um, <laughs> we have decided to comment on Were you more. kind of like cycling through possible other things like dumpster fire... Nightmare Hellscape land is always sort of like on the tip of my tongue sure, right now. These days. So, you know, we were kind of commenting on political things more abstractly before. And then as the court, like as we just got older and we, these things were more on our minds and in our lives and affecting us more, or just, we were aware of it affecting us more. We started commenting on it more, but, um, we've never had an end to write to. So this season when we were writing, it was very, it was a very different experience, uh, easier in a way, because there is an end point. And then um, it's very emotional. Did you have like a last season list of things that you want? You know, like the last day you're at the beach and you're like, well, I got to go get, you know, ice cream and I got to make sure I go in the ocean. Did you have like a list of like the broad but city? waiting a half hour before you do. <laughs> no, but on the last day, you don't wait, right? Because wow. it's the last. So right. you, the, I'm assuming the broad city version of that list was pretty exciting. It was mostly locations oh. in New York that we wanted to... Oh, so I'll, I'll say one. It's not like a spoiler. Um, we have been wanting to shoot on the Brooklyn Bridge mm. since season one. Very difficult. Do they have to shut the Brooklyn Bridge down? No, they don't. Um, <laughs> and we learned that the very difficult way... Um, by being yelled at for an entire day. Also, also, I'm sorry, you guys don't live in New York, but I just have to say, if you're riding your bike across the Brooklyn Bridge, <laughs> f you. <laughs> there, it's not for. It's not like for that. It is a walking bridge. It's wooden. Pl 
planks too. You're like, dun, 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 dun. you know, like <laughs> go on the Manhattan Bridge. Every biker was so angry at everyone. I was just like, guys, you guys need to like one go to therapy. Two, I don't know. It was quite an experience. It's what we wanted and, and finally got, and then it was so intense shooting up there. Really, I mean, I, it's packed. It's so packed all at all hours. If you want just a quick, I guess you could say, kind of a quick survey of your popularity with this crowd, Abby Jacobson. No one has ever said something anti-cyclist on this show and lived. <laughs> like yeah. we usually have to. Like a team, a security team swings and kicks in the windows and gets them out of here. Because I think they knew I wasn't, I'm not bashing cyclists. I'm like pro. I'm like, there's a better bridge for you guys. (laughs) I wouldn't want to go over it on the planks, but (laughs) Manhattan has a whole side for, for, for bikes. You guys got to know about that. Yeah. Right? If any of you... (laughs) Go to New York, and you're trying to ride from the city to Brooklyn, Manhattan Bridge. And I know they go to different areas, but it's not that far away from each other. That is Abby Jacobson right here on Livewire. Our musical guest this hour is a seven-piece ensemble that melds rhythm, blues, and 60s-era soul. And if that is not enough to pique your interest, maybe this will. Their horn section is known as the Honey Nut Horns. This is going to be amazing. Please welcome The Dip to Livewire.
inside of you Carry on It's too much for one person Oh, to hold on to Yeah Right here on Livewire, The Dip delivers. Their next album comes out in February. All right, well, that is going to do it for Livewire this week. Big thanks to our guests, Abby Jacobson, Nicole Chung, Peter Segel, and The Dip. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines Foley and the Jupiter Hotel. Special thanks this show to Amanda Bullock and all of the great people over at the Portland Book Festival and Literary Arts. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our production director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. And Elena Passarello, she's our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix is done by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Tony Milbrath of Portland, Oregon, for her support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear LiveWire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of LiveWire read on 
the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>